And I think it's safe to say that all of us in here are old enough to remember when Adam Sandler was funny, right? Do we remember that? Do you remember when he was actually funny and we enjoyed watching him perform? And now it's just, it's disgusting, really. It's just horrible. Uh, Like over the years, he had some funny things, then it started to get kind of bad and repetitive. And now with just extreme velocity, he's just pouring towards a horrible actor. It's just so bad to the point where he came out with this movie called Jack and Jill. Okay, that was it for me. I told my wife after that, I will not watch any more Adam Sandler movies. He plays himself and his sister, and that's all I need to say, okay? It's really that bad. Um, But he was in a movie one time, uh, I didn't see, but I think did pretty well, 51st 51st Dates. Raise your hand. You saw that movie, 51st Dates? Where he is apparently uh, dating someone who has this uh, short-term memory disease where every single day wakes up and forgets who she is, who she's with, doesn't know it. she has that short-term memory disease. I bet you didn't know that that is actually a real affliction that some people have. If you were to Google that, there are people who suffer from that debilitating disease where they will literally wake up each and every day and not know who the people in their house are. There is this sort of memory loss that, that causes them great angst, right? They're angry. They're, they're scared. They don't know who these people are. And they need some sort of reminder about who these people are in their life, why they're important, if, if they really love her. Uh, so if you Google that, you'll see that uh, what, what the people do in their life is they provide a book. They provide a book for the person that has memories in the book, pictures and events and things that they've gone through so that when they wake up and they have this thought like, oh, I don't know who I am, I don't know where I am, and I don't know who these people are, I don't know if they really love me, they can go back to the book and they can be assured that they're okay. I think there's a lot of analogies to that and the way the Christian should handle the Bible. You see, each and every day we should open up the day by not trying to think about who we are and what we're going to do outside of a book that God has given us to show us and remind us that his love for us is the most incredible thing ever. Yet to our fault, we wake up every day with almost this spiritual amnesia, forgetting who we are, what God has done for us, and what we should be doing for his glory. I would submit to you that each and every day we should do what these people are doing, crack open the book to make sure we know who we are, and what God wants us to do. And I can think of no better place for you each and every single morning to open up to than the chapter, second chapter of Ephesians. So if you're with me right now, listen to this. This is just a great reminder about what God has done for us and will always set us in the right mindset knowing who he is and what he's done for us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we'll start with, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, According to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, each and every morning... Most of us have a smartphone, right? 
and you have a smartphone, and if that's what you turn to, to, to orient yourself for what is going to go on during the day, you're more than likely going to be tempted to be very self-focused. What do I need to get done today? What's in my path? What new things are out there for me to learn? If that's my first look, I'm going to orient myself that way. But if I come to passages like this, or basically any passage in the scripture, I'm going to find out God is great, he's loved me, and if I don't stick to this, I'm not going to be able to glorify his name. Guys, we are so quick to forget that. In fact, you can just write down 2 Peter 1, I think it's verses 8 and 9, somewhere around there. But it says, whoever stops growing in their sanctification, in essence, um, has forgotten that they've been cleansed from their former sins. When I stop progressing, adding to my faith the things that I should be adding, it's saying, I've forgotten that I was cleansed from my former sins. I've forgotten that I have new life in Christ. I have forgotten that I have different assignments. I'm no longer driven by what I used to be driven by. I'm driven by God. We have a temptation to forget that. That's why we need the scriptures to orient us back to saying, well, God, he loves me. This is who I am, and this is what I'm designed to do. So I'm going to give you three things tonight. We're going to focus. I know we read the whole chapter. We're going to focus mainly on the first 10 verses. And this is the first thing that we should never forget each day. Never forget what you were saved from. Each and every day, I should never forget what I am saved from. Because when I begin to think about that, what I've received from God, as amazing as it is already, I think takes on a whole nether level of its incredible nature. Never forget what you were saved from. How does Paul start it? And you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's very stark language. I don't know how many of you have been in a room, hospital room, somebody who's dead, very unresponsive. Even people you care about, you can have so much love and affection for them, but them being dead, there is no response to them. And when I read passages like this, it really makes clear a little bit more what we were talking about last week for who's going to have the initiation in our relationship with God. If I'm sitting here dead, what hope do I have to respond to a God? There isn't. I, am, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And each and every day, if I don't remember that somebody had to make me alive, I'm going to begin to live my life for myself rather than for him. But if you notice the way he described it, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you were doing some active things. You were walking according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were walking according to the course of the world, meaning the standards of the world or the values of the world or the judgments of the world. What went on around you, you just kind of agreed with it. You went along with it, and that's how you dictated your life. So before God came and rescued me from that, and before God came and saved me from that hopeless way of living, I was just following the course of the people around me. And I was being led by the prince of the power of the air. This is just a reference to Satan at that point in time. Remember, we were in 1 John last year, 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That worldly system, that corrupt system that is against God and what he wants us to do, Satan's the one who's in charge of that. So if I'm following the course of this world, I'm following the ruler of that world, and that's leading me to a very, very bad place. And finally, I've got this spirit inside of me, the spirit that's in the son of disobedience. And when you hear that, you might start thinking, well, this sounds like, why am I being punished for all of this stuff? I'm just walking in the world that I'm living in. 
somebody's leading me, and it's the, a spirit inside of me, not, you know, not really me doing all of this. But what does verse 3 say? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So every single person who's ever been born was born into this situation. It's not just that I'm in this worldly system that I'm being forced to do something I don't want to do. I'm actually doing exactly what I want to do. I'm living according to my passions and my will and my desire, and I'm following hard after those things. And what that is earning me is the wrath of God. You see, this is the state that you find yourself in before salvation. We mentioned the bad movie at the beginning, Jack and Jill, but I'm going to mention a good movie now. Have you seen The Count of Monte Cristo, right? Scott Gilmore, your favorite movie, right, brother? You can probably quote every line in there, can't you? One time we'll have you reenact the whole thing here on stage. I think it'd be very entertaining. <laughs> Great movie. There's a part in there, though, where uh, he's, I don't want to spoil it for you because I want you to see it, but uh, there's a part in there where he's, he's met the priest, and they're in there, and they're trying to tunnel out. The priest, they're in the Chateau d'If, which is over there in France. Uh, the priest is there, and the priest passes away, okay? What, it, what is confusing about that? It's not? The Chateau d'If, I've, I've been in France, and I've been to the Chateau d'If. Yes. It's Marseille, yeah. Off the, uh, it's in France. Google it. I guarantee you that's true. I was there. Anyways, don't interrupt me. Why are you doing that? Why are you interrupting me? You're stopping me. My train of thought was going this way, and you made it go that way. Now it's going this way. Google. Anyways, okay, so they're in the, they're in the Chateau d'If, which is an island, yes, in France. I'm almost positive. Now I'm really starting to doubt myself. They're trying to tunnel out of there. The priest dies, and uh, the, the, the lead character, played by Jim Caviezel, is there, and he's hiding, and they put him in a body bag, the priest in a body bag, and they're going to take him, and they're going to throw the dead priest into the water. What they didn't know is that Jim Caviezel's jumped into the bag and he's actually alive and that's how he gets out. They dump him into the water, he grabs the keys at the last second and he goes into the water and he's in a very desperate situation because he's got chains on him and he's put in a bag but he's in the water and he's able to kind of get out and save himself. Unfortunately, that's the way some people in Christianity think that human beings are before God saves them. They think they're in a very precarious situation, like the alive guy in a bag, but with enough struggle, he's going to be okay and be able to get out. That's not the way this passage is describing humanity before God comes in. It's not that we just have chains and we need to unlock them and get out and have a little bit of hope of rescuing ourselves. It's that we are cadavers, dead bodies thrown into the ocean, and we sink, and we sit there until somebody comes up and resurrects us. That's what the passage is communicating to us. So we need to understand, really when we pull back, how much grace we are receiving. We are doing nothing. Think about that. Doesn't that change the way you look at last week's passage? Ephesians 1.5, In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons in Christ Jesus. I don't know how many of you have had the privilege of being in an adoption ceremony. I was in one recently. It was incredible to see. I'm in there. I'm in the courtroom. I've got the judge there. I've got my friends here. I've got this baby boy that they're getting right there. One of the coolest experiences I've ever seen. To have a child that is not biologically my friend's child now inherit a name and blessing and honor all because the judge says it's okay now. 
That's a very picturesque view of the gospel, but it only goes so far. Because if you knew this family and you knew the kid, the kid is so cute. I mean, he is so cute. On that day, he got that comb over, which you know is the cutest thing on a little boy, right? The comb over right there, I think a clip-on tie. His dad's a hipster. He had skinny jeans on, I think something like that. Just the cutest kid, okay? If you think about that, why wouldn't the family want a cute kid like that? Just so warm, so inviting. That's the adoption process here going on. But the adoption process going on in God's kingdom, he's not picking up cute kids, right? What's two, one through three say? He's picking up some pretty despicable kids. So when he comes in and chooses, it's not really because we're so lovely, but in order to make us lovely with his grace. That's why grace is so incredible. It is correct to talk about grace as being unmerited favor, but maybe we should go a little bit more precise and say grace is demerited favor. In that I am doing things against God and against his will and against his glory, and yet he still chooses to save me. That is incredible grace. I mean, it was my birthday a few days ago. I say that so you still have time to get me a gift before Sunday when you see me. But I was given gifts, right? And that's just kindness that people are giving me. But imagine the, the people who gave me gifts. My friend, <laughs> I don't know what this speaks to me. I got mostly coffee and donuts. I felt like a cop. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> but I would get coffee and donuts, and I loved both of them. So thank you very much for both. Uh, but imagine those people giving me gifts, and every time they gave me a gift, I slapped them in the face, Right? Then they give me more gifts and I just continue to smack them in the face. Those people would be giving me a gift that I've demerited. I'm not even, I don't even deserve it, right? I'm so far from it. That's how gracious this God is. Not just unmerited favor, which it is. It's demerited favor. And that's an incredible gift of grace. I want you to always remember that. The, the, the most amazing thing about this passage is it says at the end of verse 3, uh, we were uh, destined for wrath like the rest of mankind, the wrath of God, something people don't like to talk about, but that is what you were destined for, and rightfully so, with your actions. I don't know how many of you, I think it's called uh, Johnsontown, Pennsylvania. Anybody from Pennsylvania sound familiar? There's a huge flood that happened. Johnsontown, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I got some head nods back there. Uh, back in the day, uh, Andrew Carnegie was a part of a, a company and uh, what went on is they, they built a, a dam over there. And uh, there was Johnson Town over here, and the dam was up here. And the, the, the dam needed some work done to it. And so they'd tell people in the town every now and then, hey, there's a chance that you might need to be ready to get out of here. And they would say that over and over again, and the people just never paid attention to it. Well, one day, just rainstorms came. Everything had coalesced into the, the dam about to break, and they sent everyone through the town. Please get out of here. It's about to burst. And nobody moved. The unfortunate thing is that dam burst and poured down thousands of gallons of water onto the people, wiping out almost the whole town because they didn't respond to the salvation message that wrath was coming. If you are here tonight and you don't know Christ, I'm telling you, this passage says the wrath is coming and you don't want to take it. The God who we're about to talk about in a moment is offering you a way out and he's done that through giving his son on the cross to die for your sins. And that son rose again three days later so that if you put your faith in him, you do nothing. By grace you have been saved. You get to receive an inheritance. You get to go to heaven. God is so loving. He saved you from that. 
Never forget that. If each and every day you wake up and you think you deserve to have what you have, you don't know what you were saved from. You don't deserve that. You've demerited that. We've got to remember that. What does verse 4 say, though? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his graces in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What an incredible God. So each and every day I want to remember, never forget what I was saved from, but never forget who I was saved by, okay? Never forget who you were saved by. And the more and more that you increase in your love for God, the more and more that you increase in your knowledge of God, the more and more that you grow a higher view of God, the more you are going to orient yourself each and every day to live for him. That will not happen naturally. That will not happen if you think you will just drift towards that. That's why I'm saying you are so tempted to forget that. You need to go to the book that God has designed to make sure you never forget who you are and who he is. This God is so incredible. My fear is that we live in a culture that teaches you to view God based on how happy he's making you, okay? We we talk about this often. My God is so great. He's done this, this, and this for me. And it's basically what I've got makes me think that God is a great God when he is so much more majestic than that. If you could maybe juxtapose it two different ways. Are you looking to God And is your view of God based on how happy he makes you or based on how holy he is? Because if I only view God on how happy he makes me, it's like I'm I'm picturing a God that I need a microscope to really see. You know, in a microscope, when it magnifies something, it takes something that's really small and insignificant and blows it up so it really appears kind of big. If you have a view of God that he's only in control when things are going good for you, you have a God that is made up in your own mind and you really just have to blow him up in that sense, make him look bigger than he really is because of your circumstances. But the second that's taken from you, you realize how small and insignificant that God is, really not worthy of anything. So if I view God only on how happy he makes me and really not on how holy he is, that's how I'm going to view him. But if I just consider his holiness and his majesty and his greatness... It's like what a telescope does, right? Things that we know are huge and incomprehensible by themselves, if I look through a telescope, I can at least begin to comprehend. Well, now I know why I read the scriptures every day. And I don't let my circumstances dictate my view of God. I let the Bible do that. And that allows me to have a frame of reference for the greatness of God and who he is and what he's done for me based on his own self-revelation in the Bible. That's why every day I'm telling you to go back to the Bible so you never forget who saved you. If you think about how bad you were before and how good and perfect and holy God is when he saved you, that's going to change your attitude throughout the day. I mean, if you genuinely have received salvation, you've been pardoned by all your sins, they're no longer accounted on your account, that's incredible. I've been uh, working off some student loan debt, paying them off uh, one by one, and there's a few of them that are saying, paid in full, paid in full. And I can't wait for the day when I see all of them saying, paid in full. Now imagine I amassed this huge debt and somebody came along and just said, I'm taking that all away, paid in full straight across. You know how grateful I would be to that person? 
You know how much I would admire that person for doing that? That is what God did for you. He took everything, paid in full, right away, because he's a merciful God, because he's a loving God, because he's a gracious God. Do you know the God that saved you? You need to develop this knowledge. It's Colossians 1.10. Uh, we need to increase in our knowledge of God. So I would just say to you, in order to enjoy salvation more, and in order to understand God more, we need to make sure we know who God is. I'd write down Deuteronomy 12. No, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 15. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 15. This is one of those passages, just reading the daily Bible reading, which I hope you do with us, that I'm learning new things about God as I read that. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 15. And anytime you just read the daily Bible reading, the great thing is, oh, I learned something new about God. Let's pull it out and study it. And that's going to help you grow in the knowledge of God. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 10 uh, says, For behold, to the Lord your God belong heavens and the heavens of heaven, the earth and everything that's in it. Yet the Lord chose to set his love on you and chose your, uh, chose your father and their offspring afterwards. When I see that, when God owns everything, and God's in control of everything, and yet he chooses to specify love on anybody is an incredible gift. So the more that I increase in the knowledge of God, I'm going to read but God in a lot different way than if I have a very low view of God. You've got to spend time getting to know him. Because this God, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. We've got a lot of things that we need to keep in mind, but there's, a, there's another one. Not only do we need to never forget what we were saved from, God's wrath, never who we were saved by, this amazing God, but we need to remember what we're saved for. That's number three. What are we saved for? Because there's a lot of people who want to talk about the great forgiveness of God and all the pardon and all the blessing he gives you, and I want to talk about how merciful he is and how gracious he is and how he's never going to remember our sins anymore. And then you take a look at their life and you wonder, what God do you know that would allow you to live like that? What God is going to forgive your sins and then just give you a leash to go live it up in any sort of lifestyle you want? Why would God save you from that lifestyle and then let you continue it afterwards? In our passage, it says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Don't read that last part, should, as uh, an optional thing. It's very, in, in the original, it's very intent. Uh, it's a, a purpose clause. This is what the purpose of your salvation is. You are purposed to do this in order to walk in these things, in order to do these good works that God has laid out beforehand. What I love about that passage is the way that it's set up. It's emphasizing we are his workmanship. Whenever we begin to talk about creation, that really sets us in the right context with God. Too often I think we, we, we uh, default to this. Ah, uh, you know, my nature is just to be kind of passive. My nature is just, you know, kind of do this. And we blame it on nature as if there's nobody in control telling us what we should do and how we should live. But if I say, hey, I was created for a reason, whatever I feel about the situation, I need to make sure I do what that creator has designed me to do. And this passage tells us you're his workmanship, designed for good works, that, not that they save you, but that's what you do when you are saved. 
See, that's the great thing about salvation. Your life begins to change. And you are, 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. So we should be increasing in our new works. The great thing about this is uh, there was a, an old story I was reading when I was in this, uh, studying for this. They used to talk about a, a sculptor. And this word workmanship is somebody who would sculpt or make something, their masterpiece in the original language. Uh, and they were talking to somebody who made this great marble statue of Robert E. Lee. Just a great statue of it. And after the work was done, they, they approached him and they said, how did you, how did you create that? And uh, the guy, the, the artist who created it, looked at them and said, I just chipped away every piece that didn't look like it belonged on Robert E. Lee. If you think about that, that's an interesting way to put it. Anything that I saw on that marble that w didn't resemble Robert E. Lee, I chipped it away, got rid of it. It's exactly what God does with us. When he sees anything that doesn't look like Christ, he's going to chip it away. It's the work that's going to go on in you. So you know what? You might be going through a difficult trial right now, but guess what God is doing through that trial? He's finding something in you, identifying something in you that doesn't really look like Christ, and what he's doing is he's going to take that little scalpel and he's just going to knock it off. He's just going to knock it off and knock that little chip off and knock that off there until he gets you to the perfect form of the image of his son, which Romans 8, 29 tells us. Those whom he loved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, this is the great thing of what it means to know the God who saved you and what he's saved you for. Guys, this is, this is in essence what a testimony is, okay? When anybody asks you a testimony, we're not asking you just to tell us about your life and you know, maybe some miraculous things or some good things that happened to you. This is what a testimony is. You talk about where you were, what God did, and how that changed you. And that's the essence of a testimony. You should know that and be able to testify what God has done in your life life. And I hope when you think back on that, that you realize that there can never really be a boring testimony. I do baptism testimony sometimes, and people will come in and they'll say, you know, I just, I don't have a really interesting testimony. Do you think it's interesting that somebody who was dead is now alive? Do you think that's a cool thing? I think that's a pretty cool thing. Do you realize that even if you were good and moral in that sense, that God probably hated that morality more than he does immorality? God hates self-righteousness so much. Just read the way Christ talked to the Pharisees. Anyone who thinks they're good apart from God, God hates that the most. So my wife and I, we've got different testimonies. You can ask us. I grew up in a Christian home. But I know that my actions before Christ, that I thought were really good actions, obeying mom and dad and doing all this, they're filthiness before God. Isaiah 6, 46. They're not saving me. I'm dead in my sins until he resurrects me and gives me life. Now I'm ready. By grace, I've been saved. And it's through faith. So I'm never going to boast in what God has done. We need to make sure that goes on each and every day. Now why is Paul emphasizing that here in the book of Ephesians? Why is he bringing this up now? Why is it such a temptation for us to forget the love of God and how much we love him? Turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Turn to Revelation, chapter 2. If you don't think that this is something that daily you need to pour yourself into, if you don't think you need to realize the grace that you've had, how much you've demerited God and, and what he's trying to give to you, what he's done, what you should do afterwards, if you don't think you need to remind yourself of that daily, just understand what's going on here in Revelation 2.1. 
These are letters to churches who should be doing what God is asking them to do when they're not. Notice the first church that he talks to, Revelation 2, 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Write these words. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, I know your toil, I know your patient endurance, I know that you cannot bear with those who do evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found themselves to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. This is the church at Ephesus. Paul started it. Timothy was there. John is writing to them. It's not as if they haven't had good people instructing them on what God is doing and expecting them to do and all the grace that he's blessed them with, and yet it's possible for them to just kind of go through the motions. Don't let that be you. If I go to the scriptures every day and I understand what God has revealed, my eyes are open to his grace every single day in a different way. But I can never forget what he's given me. I can't forget who I am and what he's done and what he's calling me to do. When I have that, my relationship with him will flourish. Because that's what we're asking you to do each and every day. And that's what God is asking you to do. And when you do that, you will find your relationship with him and others grow in significant ways. So let's covenant right now to do that. And we're going to head over to small groups. Let's pray. Father, forgive us if we ever get to the state where we are comfortable with the great love that you've given us with the great majesty with which you've saved us, with the great ability which with you've done so, Father, even when we were doing things against you, it's not just as if we were just kind of passive towards you. We were aggressively against you, and yet you reached out your gracious hand and saved us. Thank you for your mercy and love. May, Father, we treat other people with the same mercy and love that you've expressed to us. And, Father, as that happens, I pray that you would grow and strengthen these marriages so that we might know you better and be better servants in your kingdom. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.